We can turn over in your Bibles to Amos, once again, Amos chapter 3. We're going to finish up our outline from last week. Tonight, we're in uh, Amos chapter 3. And once again, we're talking about God's judgment of Judah and Israel. And uh, really, Israel's guilt and their punishment is what most of the, the, the Bible says, the heading for chapter 3. And just to give you just a quick kind of review last week, we started on this section of verses 1 through 15, and we, we looked at the punishment that God will bring to Israel in verses 1 to 2, and he referred to Egypt there and they, about the relationship they had to the Lord. And then secondly, we saw that there's a principle involved here in verse 3, where he says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? And so this is Amos's way of saying, hey, look, I, I, I agree with God on this issue. And so he's walking with God. And we ask the question, do we agree? But when it comes to our own personal walk with the Lord, are we able to say, yeah, I, I agree with that, Lord? Or are we putting up our hand and going, well, wait a minute, not so fast, Lord. So there's that principle there. And then we looked at the, the pictures that teach this judgment is coming. And that's in verse th- uh, 4 to 6. And we saw the lion that roars, speaking of God, the snare that traps, and the trumpet that blows. And we, we looked at each one of those kind of in detail. And you notice there, we, we looked at this, this verse when, uh, verse 6, is the trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And the old King James says, does evil come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And so uh, it's kind of a poor translation, actually, that word for evil there, ra in the Hebrew, it's, it's 640 times in the Old Testament, and actually uh, 350 of those times, it clearly refers to just that moral evil. Uh, to sin against God's law. But the other 300 times that it's used, it doesn't refer to that. It refers to physical calamity or judgment. And so just given your own theology, when you come to Amos, and if your translation did say, when evil comes to a city, unless the Lord has done it, does evil come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Even if you have the word evil there, you, you should be able to conclude that obviously the Lord can't do evil. Right? Right? Yeah. So uh, he's perfect. He's sinful. Or he's sin- sinless. He can't sin. And so it's very important that we understand that. And so the, the ESV has it right. Does disaster or calamity uh, come to a city? And when it does, and we talked about this last week, sometimes we think, well, that's not fair, or you know, all this stuff that's happening. You think of even over in Israel now with these people who are being held hostage against their will, you know, well... Why did this have to happen to them? Um, I don't know, but God allowed it. And so we have to be understanding that God is sovereign over all these things. And, and we looked about the idea that even in uh, nature, right, there's no such thing as natural disasters. God allows them to happen under the authority of his hand. He's the one that uh, causes the rain and the tornadoes and the earthquakes and everything else that brings uh, calamity into people's lives, and he allows it for a purpose. 
So that's as far as we got last week. And we looked a little bit at the panic that will come in verses 7 to 8. And I'll just read from 7 down to the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray and we'll get started. He says in verse 7, For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secrets to the servants, to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Verse 9, proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, verse 11, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Verse 12, thus says the Lord. You see that phrase over and over and over again in prophecy. Thus says the Lord. As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. We're going to look at what that means, actually. It's actually a Hebrew idiom. Verse 13, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, that on the day, on that day, I, I punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. And I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Father, we pray tonight that you'd give us insight into your word as we look at these last couple points here. Uh, the panic, the prophecy, and, and the publishing of what you want to do concerning Israel. And Lord, we pray that you would make these truths applicable to us as believers here today. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the panic that will come in verses 7 to 8, he says here there's a panic that's going to come. It says, who will not fear? Who will not fear? For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secrets to his prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? It's so important that God uh, kind of warns us this way. Uh, Jesus said, in the New Testament, the great tribulation comes. This is a fact of life. And when it does, it says men's hearts will fail them because of fear for seeing what's going on on the earth. I don't know if you saw this commercial. David Jeremiah has a, a new book out about the rapture, and he has a commercial on TV. And it has different kind of vignettes. Once people are in an airport, and he's talking about the rapture is going to happen and he said, can you imagine all of a sudden you're in the airport and all of a sudden there's, <laughs> you look around and there's a bunch of people gone. That would be weird. Or if you're in a, another vignette was they're in an operating room and there's a patient on the table and all of a sudden they're gone. They're not there. And maybe a couple of the doctors are not there because they're not believers or they're be believers and they've been raptured up. And you think about the panic that will follow that, that day uh, that we're waiting for. And Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. Uh, even in Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 6, talking about the sealed judgments 
are the coming to a conclusion, and he tells us about the day of God's wrath and what will happen here on earth. And it tells us in that text in Revelation 6, you can read it on your own, it says they're hiding themselves, kings and princes and leaders, and they're hiding in caves and they're hiding in dens, and they're hiding themselves, they think, from the wrath of the Lamb of God, the Messiah of Israel. And so he says, who will not fear? You know, if you do not fear on that day, guess what? You don't have a clue. You don't understand. When you do not fear God's judgment, you don't have a clear perspective of who God is. I've met believers who willfully sin, and they don't fear God. They don't know who their God is. I would say it's not the God of the Bible, that's for sure. See, many of us fear all kinds of things, don't we? Rudy, you spoke about that tonight. We fear the judgment of others. We fear medical things. We fear financial collapse. We fear government upheaval. We, feel, we fear we're not going to be accepted. We feel we're not going to be loved. We, we long for that approval. and we're, we're, we're fearful if we don't get approval from others. We fear so many things. I mean, you could make a list. We could talk the rest of the night about things we fear. Terrorism, people, all kinds of things. Yet the Bible says what? Do not fear what? Do not fear man. It says do not fear man. Why? Because that's a snare. It's a trap. The fear of man is a, is a snare. And the Bible says don't fear man who can kill your body, but rather fear what? Fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. That's who we need to fear. We need to fear God. And we don't hear that a lot today. We hear all this lovey-dovey stuff about God. Everybody wants to talk about the love of God, the love of God. We, we need to start talking about the holiness of God. We need to start talking about the justice of God, the wrath of God. And so the issue of panic coming Two things here. It's God's plan for the future. And guess what? He says it's revealed to his servants. He says it right there in verse uh, 6, it is, or in verse uh, 8. It's revealed to his servants, the prophets. Verse 7. For the Lord does, not, does nothing without revealing his secret to his, prof, to his servants, the prophets. That's the very first thing. Why is that important for us to understand? I mean, people, you know, always, they'll come and they'll say, oh, you know, Steve, you know, the Lord, you know, said this to me the other day. Or, you know, the Lord told me this, or the Lord told me that. And a lot of times I'll respond, chapter, verse. Chapter, verse. I mean, do you think God's going to give you anything more than what's in the Scripture? No. And so what he's saying here, his plan for this future and for the, the revealing of it, revealing his secret, only the Lord knows, and he reveals it to who? To his servants who? The prophets. The prophets. See, God has already said, beloved, everything he is going to say about the future. And he said it through his prophets. And the prophets recorded their messages via the Holy Spirit in Scripture, in the canon of Scripture. 
And guess what? If it's not in the Bible, maybe you had too much to eat. Maybe you didn't sleep very well the night before. I mean, most people don't like to hear that, but that's the truth. It's not coming from God's word. I don't want to hear it. Hebrews, turn over to Hebrews once. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. This is very important today because we live in a day and age where everybody's spouting off saying, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, and none of it's found in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, there you go, God what? What's it say? God spoke. He spoke. Past tense. God's not speaking. He spoke to our fathers by what? The prophets. I like what I think it's Justin Peters that said this. I don't know if he said it first, but he says, if, if you want to hear God speak to you, read your Bible. Read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak to you audibly, read it out loud. <laughs> and that's true. We got too many people going into the, the mysterious clouds, coming to fellowship, saying, oh, God told me this the other day. Or God showed me this, or God showed me that. If it's not within the confines of Scripture, God didn't show you anything, frankly. He, he reveals His character. He reveals His truth through His Word. And, and the wheels come off the cart really quick when you start going down your own path. When I can come here on a Wednesday night and say, oh, you know what, I was shaving, and there's this truth. Nobody's ever said this before. This is a brand new truth. God revealed it to me directly while I was shaving, and here's what it is. All I can say is run. Throw rocks at me. Okay, kick me out of the church if that day ever comes and I say something like that because I'm speaking non-truths. What's the last name of the book in the, what's the last name of the book of the Bible? The last name, what is it? Revelation of what? Revelation. It's not revelations. Understand, I always, that irritates me. Oh, turn to the book of Revelations. No, 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 no. It's the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. The greatest revelation about Christ. The whole Bible, that's, that's right there in Revelation. And what does the last chapter of that book say? It says, you know what? You cannot add to the words of this prophecy or God will add to you the plagues of this book. Maybe you need to read a book of Revelation and read about some of the plagues. I don't think you'll want them in your house. I know I don't want them in mine. Don't add to it. And he also says, don't take away from it. Listen how serious this is. Or God will take away your, your part in the book of life. This is a life and death situation. And yet so many times we're throwing around our opinions and all these things that are not found in Scripture, frankly, thinking as if thus saith the Lord. It's very serious. And that's how people get led down paths into erroneous teaching. So 
this future that God is revealing, he's revealing to his servants the prophets. And he's already done it. And now we have it recorded for us in Scripture. Secondly, you look at God's part in all this. And what's his part? Quickly, in verse, verse 7 and 8 there, he basically says his part is to warn his people, right, of what he intends to do. This is a gracious God. God doesn't just wipe out a bunch of people and doesn't tell them it's coming, right? He, he gives them the occasion to repent. He gives them the opportunity to turn their hearts back to him. God's part is to warn his people what he intends to do. And remember, in the book of Amos, back to the book of Amos, this is, these are judgments that are not going to be retracted, remember? These are things that are as good as done. In other words, God's cup of wrath is filled up and it's overflowing. <laughs> and he said, that's it. There's, there's, I can't do anything. I love you too much to let you continue down this path. So now you're going to feel my judgment. And God isn't doing it in a malicious way. He's doing it in a loving way. And so he's even telling him, hey, this is coming. This is what's going to happen to you because of this. And you know, we can follow through the New Testament, right, as believers. And what does Jesus do? He lays down an example for us. Uh, the disciples of Jesus, through their epistles, through their writings, lay down commandments for us, lay down ways of life, lay down biblical principles that we should follow. And when we turn a blind eye to what God says, when God says, don't be unequally yoked, he doesn't mean, well, it's okay. No. I I've talked to a lot of people who grew up in the church and thinking of one individual, not here in this church, but in another church, and uh, grew up in a Christian home. First marriage didn't survive. Second marriage entered into a relationship with a Catholic. It's unfortunate. They have a, they have, I guess they're doing okay in their marriage. But, I mean, from what we learned this past week, they don't have the gospel right. They just don't. So it's very important when God says, don't be unequally yoked, and I remember asking this individual, well, that's good, you, you got engaged. Are they a Christian? Oh, yeah. I said, oh, really? What church do they go to? Well, well, they're Catholic. Because <laughs> they knew. They didn't want to tell me. They knew. And I thought, man, you're going down the wrong road. But you know what? The Word of God is over here on the shelf. Don't tell me about that. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I, I like other parts of the Word of God, but I don't like that part. You know, I'm willing to violate a principle that God lays down. And somebody very close in my, in my family who, had the opportunity to go into a business with someone. Invited into a, a business partnership. The first thing I said is, well, who are they and are they a believer? And the person said, no, they're not, and I'm not doing it. I said, good. God will provide another way. Don't worry about it. And he did. Because they honored God's principle. 
See, this is what God does. He warns his people about his plan that he reveals through his prophets. And it's all found for us right here in the word of God. And this leads to the, the next thing here in verse 8, that the, the, the prophecy must be given. It says, the lion has roared, who will not fear? Look at what it says, the Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? What Amos is saying is, look, I have this burden, that's what his name means, and it's coming from the Lord, and I just got to get this thing out. I have to be obedient to what God has given me to share. He knew this was going to be hard news for a lot of people. He knew that a lot of people would turn a deaf ear to what he's saying. He knew a lot of people would, would say, Amos, you know what, who are you? You're like a, some farmer guy. Get out of here. You've never been to prophet, prophet school. You're not even the son of a prophet. Get lost. We don't want to listen to this. Besides that, you smell. You smell like sheep. Go back to your animals. But no, he did what the Lord told him to do. And he says, you know what? The Lord has spoken. See, God will never, ever just keep quiet when his truth needs to be heard. This is a matter of his grace. This is a matter of his love. I mean, when God destroyed Judah and Jerusalem via Babylon, the last chapter, think about this, the last chapter, the last book, the last chapter chronological, chronologically in the Hebrew Bible is what? Wise. It's not Malachi. <laughs> Nobody answered. That's good. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 36. That's the last chapter in the Old Testament, chronologically. Now, when in Chronicles chapter 36, if you read that, see all these prophets that we're reading about now, Amos and all these other ones that we've gone through, um, they really belong back, way back in history, chronologically. And it tells us why he waited so long in 2 Chronicles. He, he, he tells them, you know what, that he sent the messengers to his prophets to warn them over and over and over again because he loved them. God doesn't just lower the bar of judgment without any warning. But what did they do? The, the, the messengers went to God's people. What did they do? The Bible says they mocked them. They persecuted them. They didn't listen to them as from God. And finally, he says, you know what? I've had it. I've sent you a warning through my servants, the prophets. You don't listen. You're, you're not willing to do what I'm instructing you to do. So judgment is coming. I can't do anything else. I love you too much. This is Amos's message to these people. See, when we say that, you know, we have this book called the Bible, some people say, you know, the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. That should be our mantra as believers. The, the Bible, the whole Bible, nothing but the Bible. See, this is, the Bible is God's warning to us. It's God's warning to us. It's God's instruction to us, but it's also God's warning. 
And guess what? If we decide in our own wisdom to say, you know what, I don't, this is too hard to understand. I don't want to do it. It's too constructive, constrictive to my lifestyle, whatever it is. And I'm just going to set it aside. We're not going to pay attention to God's word when we know better, when we know it's God's word and we, we set it aside, but we're not going to listen to what he says. We're not going to follow the principles that God gives us to solve problems and matters that we have and bring resolutions and solutions into our own lives. We're not going to follow that. We're not going to do that. We're going to do our own thing. You know what we're doing? We're showing the same rebellion that Amos is trying to point out in the heart of Israel, God's own people. We're doing the exact same thing. We're turning a blind eye, a deaf ear to God's word. And look at what he says here. He says, the Lord, verse 8, the Lord God, what? Has spoken. That, that phrase, the Lord God has spoken, is found 138 times in the Bible. The Lord God has spoken over and over and over and over again. And if you start looking them up, you'll be amazed at what the Lord God has spoken about. And as I started reading them, I started thinking, wow, you know what? This is all I need. I don't need some self-help book. I don't need some counselor. I don't need, you know, a bunch of other uh, material. No, all I need is God's word as his child. I just need his word. God, help me understand your word. Give me an appetite for your word. And yet so many believers today in Christendom, have taken the Bible and they bring it to church on Sunday, and that's the last time they, they touch it, till the next Sunday. It's horrible. It's sad. But when you start reading what the Lord has spoken about, you know, this is the, the problem, I think, with our modern-day generation of, of Christians, frankly. We've been substituting all these these church programs and entertainment techniques and everything under the sun, everything that will, you know, hopefully put a little happy face on us, and we're avoiding the one, one thing, the one thing that God has given us that will guide and direct our lives and help us understand the future. We're just unwilling to follow what he says. I mean, sometimes people will will ask questions. And so they, they'll ask a question, and, and the first thing in my mind is, okay, how can I answer this question with Scripture? This should be the first thing on our heart. Not, oh, so-and-so has a great book on this topic, or so-and-so, I went to the seminar, and this is what they said. No, go to the Word of God. Take them to a portion of Scripture that addresses whatever issue they may have. But we don't do that sometimes. I mean, frankly, when people are giving me counsel, if it's not found within the context of Scripture, frankly, I don't want to hear it. I turn a deaf ear to it. Because all it is is their opinion. And they're just a fallen human being like I'm a fallen human being. So it's one sinner trying to help another sinner. That's not going to go well. But when one sinner brings the word of God, which is the truth, to another sinner, and says, here, try this, try that. This is what the word of God says about that. And that's what Amos is doing. He's pointing these people 
to the Word of God because this prophecy must be given. And you know what? How do you know that Amos's prophecy is true? Well, turn back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, back in the Old Testament, chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, because he tells us, <clears throat> God's Word tells us. He's given us a clear guideline so we can know if the Lord has spoken or not. And Israel knew this. Deuteronomy 18, look at what verse 21 says. And if you say in your heart, see, he already knew what they were going to say, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord? If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it, what? Presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. In other words, you know what? Prophets don't get do-overs. If you're a prophet and you say, oh, thus saith the Lord, and you, you say some prophecy, and that prophecy doesn't come to pass, guess what? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, they stone you. You don't get a second try. Well, let me try, let me try this again. No. God has no tolerance for that. And yet we see people on TV, we see people in Christendom today saying, oh, thus saith the Lord. Chapter verse, excuse me, chapter verse. Where is that in the Bible? Now, if they're saying something that's a principle supported by Scripture, that's fine. But so many times it's not. And we need to be aware of this. But as I started reading through these thus saith the Lord phrases throughout Scripture, I was really blessed because that nation of Israel was a part of what the Lord has spoken. He was a part of it. You say, what do you mean by that? It, it, it's interesting that the Lord God gave Israel the land to his descendants, which also said to be spoken by the Lord. You can see this in Joshua chapter 21. I'll just read this for you. You don't have to turn there. Joshua 21, verse 43. Thus, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to their fathers to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them the rest of every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all of their enemies has withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel has failed. All came to pass. Or in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 14, and I will put my spirit within you, speaking to God's people, and you shall live, and I will place you in your land. What an exciting time to live today. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. It doesn't matter what the Arab nations that hate Israel think. The one day they will possess all the land that God promised to them. It, do, it doesn't matter what other countries think. It doesn't matter. Psalm 50, verse 1, it says, The mighty one 
God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. What's he saying? Everything that happens is under his sovereign hand. He speaks it into place. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good land, he tells his folks. But if you refuse and you rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. What's happening? Israel has rebelled. They're living in a state of rebellion even today. Everybody scratches their head. Why does everybody hate Israel? It's part of God's plan. It's part of God's plan. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken, he says in verse 20 there. Or Isaiah 25, 8 says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all the faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Yeah, it's a, it's a dark day for Israel right now, but you know what? It's not always going to be dark. God's going to protect Israel. You don't have to worry about Israel. Everywhere you read, thus saith the Lord, it's concerning his people. It's concerning the protection of his people. And so this prophecy has to be given. It wasn't an option for Amos. Even though he felt inadequate, even though he thought, Lord, why am I, why am I the one that's going to do this? But he did it because he was obedient. And then the last thing, number six out of our points here, the publishing of what God will do. And this is kind of a larger section, verses 9 to 15. It covers several verses. It's really talking about the publishing of what God will do. In other words, should we tell people about these things? Yes, if it's in the Bible. No, if it's not in the Bible. We don't need to make things up in our theology. And so verses 9 to 15, what does he do? He publishes in the, the palaces of Ashdod, in the palaces of the land of Egypt. And basically just several L's here. First one, look at what God will do in verse 9. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. He says, don't, don't take your eye off it. That word proclaim could also be translated behold. He says, look at what I'm doing. Well, look at what I will do. Look at what I have done. Don't take your eyes off. And see, the moment we take our eyes off what God has done in our own life, what happens? Then our current problems overwhelm us. And then we, we end up in depression. We end up, you know, not sleeping at night and all these things that bother us. But then, you know, when you stop and you say, wait a minute, I was, I was feeling this way a couple years ago, but God, I'm here today. And I totally forgot about that problem because God brought me through it. That's why it's important sometimes to, you know, to, to, if, you, if you're good at this, to keep a journal. It's a blessing. When you go back and you read, wow, I remember this day. I was feeling so defeated. I was, but you know what? I read this psalm. Oh, man, it just spoke life to my heart. You know what, God? I'm kind of feeling the same way. Maybe it's not the same psalm, but what do you have for me, God? Because you know he will answer. He won't turn a deaf ear to his child. Keep your eyes on what God has done in your, in your life. 
Maybe those, those days when, you know what, if it wasn't for one of God's angels, you would have been dead on a freeway somewhere. But somehow supernaturally you survived. The guy missed you, or you avoided the crash, or, or whatever it might be. I remember when I was driving out to uh, Kay Anderson's funeral, and a uh, lady used to come to church here, and out in the valley, and for whatever reason that day it was just crazy windy and nutty weather. And I remember I got out there, and I was delayed by a train in, in Modesto or somewhere. I don't know. It was just horrible. I barely got to the service, and I got there, and they were already halfway through the service. I wasn't doing the service, luckily. I was just going as a courtesy. And, uh, but I had, I had to go to the restroom so bad. I, I, and I stopped at three or four places. And I don't know what, what is going on out there in the valley, but everywhere I stopped, I went in to 7-Eleven. Can I just use your restaurant? I'll buy some. Oh, bathroom closed, sir. Sorry. Oh, you got to be kidding me, you know. So I go to the next place. No, nope. three places. Finally, I end up at this cemetery. And I'm standing there, and I'm like, you know, just. And I'm thinking, I got to find a restroom. So I ran over to the funeral home place, and and. I grabbed a groundskeeper along the way and I said, you know what? I don't even have time to ask you, but I need, I need to pee so bad. I, I am going to explode. So find me a restroom. Oh, here, I'll take you the back way. So I go through these maze of hallways and stuff. Finally, the restroom. Great. And then before he leaves, he goes, I got to go because I have a service going on, but um, you know, you can't go back the same way. You're going to have to walk all the way around. <laughs> so I get done and I'm thinking, yeah, right, pal. So I, I tried to remember, I kind of got lost, but I made it back. And just at the end of the, the conclusion of, of the service, everything went well. You know, they're glad I was there. I'm driving home, and I'm on, what is it? Not 280, but that, that road that, that goes out there, and uh, the freeway. And I'm just coming out of, of uh, the valley there, and the wind's just crazy. All of a sudden, I look up, and it's like, it's like, it's like raining these giant uh, tumbleweeds. And I'm driving my wife's car. She wasn't with me. And it was newer then. So I'm like, oh, man, if these things hit it. It's going to destroy this car, you know? And, I mean, literally, they were huge. They were like four feet. And just like all over the place. And so people started jamming on their brakes. And I'm going like 80 miles an hour on the freeway. And I'm like, whoa! And I'm going off on the side of the road in the dirt. And... And, and I get through it, I'm looking in my rearview mirror, and there's cars. Like, I'm like, wow, Lord, thank you. Thank you. I mean, I mean I, not even a problem. I slowed down a little bit, but after that, it kind of scared me. I mean, seriously, it was just a weird, just such a weird thing. And I thought, thank God nobody was on my left when I pulled over and off in the dirt, and I didn't lose control. And, you know, that's what God can do. And we, we, sometimes we forget that that he has saved us out of precarious situations like that. And so he says, look at, look at what God will do. Don't ever, don't ever take your eye off it. Um, don't think you can just, and, and what Amos is telling Israel here, don't think you can sweep this judgment under the rug. He wants them to look at it in the face. He wants them to understand I mean, I, I really fear for our own nation, for what's going on at the present time. Seriously. It, it's just off the hinges. It's very fearful. 
But then you think, wait, God, God, God can do something here through all this. I don't know what he's doing. So look at what he can do. Verse 10 talks about learning why he will bring his judgment. Look at verse 10. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. We have to learn why he will bring his judgment. In verse, verse 10, what's the reason? Uh, it, it's, it's, it's very, very clear. He says they don't know how to do right. Uh, they don't know how to do right. I mean, you can't say it any more simply than that. Um, they don't know how to do right. And so he's going to bring his judgment. The, the cup of wrath is full. And then verse 11 and 12, <laughs> verse 11 and 12, it says, basically there the point is, learn how he will bring it to pass. Look at what it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. First thing here is the coming of an adversary. He's going to destroy their self-confidence. See, Israel is feeling pretty good about themselves. And yet, God says, no, you're, you're feeling too good about yourselves, frankly. And he, he, he says that he's going to bring down their strength. Um, now, what he says there in verse 11 is that the coming of this ad adversary was Assyria, and they will destroy their, their, their self-confidence. Um, see, they were, they, were, they were depending on what they had done previously. They were depending on what they had known previously. And it was their own works that gave them this kind of self-confidence before a holy God, thinking, oh, you know what, you know, it's okay. We can just kind of not worry about this. But listen, if you do not repent, if God shows you clearly and you do not repent, God will show you that he will bring circumstances, he, whether it's through circumstances or someone, and, and that person or those things will destroy your self-confidence because God doesn't want you to be self-confident. That's a lie. Just like God doesn't want you to have self-esteem. That's the secular world talking. I'm not saying we're to walk around with ashes on our head. Woe is me. We have to understand who we are, what? In Christ. That's where our identity is. It's not in ourself. I mean, if I did rely on my own self-confidence, I couldn't do anything. Nothing. I mean, so many times, you know, you, you know, people, and sometimes, you know, it's done lovingly or whatever, but you hear things all the time about stuff, you know, well, pastor, you didn't do this, or you, didn't, you should have said it this way, you should have said whatever. And you know what? And there's nothing bothering me right now, just in case you're wondering, I, I don't have a current issue with this, but I'm just saying over the course of many years in ministry, you constantly get this blowback on, on something. And you know what? I can't even remember half the stuff. 
You know, I used to keep all the letters, nasty letters people would send me in a file. And I thought, why am I keeping these things? This is stupid. So I shredded them, got rid of them. And I haven't thought about them since. Doesn't bother me at all. And you know what I finally realized is none of that stuff has any significance on my walk with the Lord. God knows my heart. God knows what I'm trying to do, even though I may not do it perfectly every time. Just like he knows what you're trying to do. And just like he knows you don't do it perfectly every time. Matter of fact, it's a colossal, really waste of time to even listen to half of that stuff. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't bend an ear and, and say, okay, well, that's good feedback and grow from that. That's, that's fine. But I know a lot of people, they'll take something somebody said and, man, it eats them up for weeks. I mean, I've had people come to me months later, Pastor, you know, when we were talking one day, this happened. And, and I'm like, what are you even talking about? I don't even recall the conversation. And yet they've been just bugged by the whole thing. See, that's why we should keep, what, short accounts with people, right? You know, if, if you say something to me and it offends me, if I have a need to come to you and tell you that it offends me, I pray that I'll do it in a short period of time. I won't wait a day, even. Right in the conversation, I may say, you know what, I, I don't agree with that. Or that's kind of offensive. Why would you say that to me? You know, and just get it over with. Because then it doesn't have to float around in your head for weeks and months and thinking all these scenarios. And then finally, when you come and, and want to talk about it, nobody even remembers what it was. So we need to learn here why he is bringing this and he says, there's going to be a, a, an adversary coming, and he's going to ruin your self-confidence. We become so burdened down and encumbered and upset about things that really don't count at all for eternity. In fact, the enemy sometimes even uses things like that to stop us from doing what really what God wants us to do. And one of the things that God does, and I've seen him do it to me and to others time and time again, and he does it in a lot of different ways, he will literally smash your self-confidence. He will crush your pride. He will just crush your dependency upon anything that's other than him. And he'll put you in a position, flat on your back, and the only way to look is up. You ain't know how you got there, but you say, God help me. And he does. Well, you see the coming of the adversary, but also in verse 12, you see the circumstances of their lives will be radically changed. Look at what it says in verse, verse 12 there. It says, thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. What in the world is Amos talking about at this point? What is this about? Well, the phrase there, those who dwell in the corner of a bed, is really a, it's, it's called a Hebrew idiom. And it refers to a sense 
that's, that's false, a false sense of security. That's what he's referring to. I mean, you know, your, your bed, whether you like to admit it or not, is kind of a, a, a place of security, is it not? Hopefully when you go to your bed tonight, you're not laying in your bed. Oh, I'm so worried to be here. No, yeah, you, you, you like being in your bed. You, you want to go to sleep, right? Some of us are probably like, yeah, shut up. I want to go home and go to my bed now, right? Yeah, I do. And sometimes you have a busy week or whatever, and, and that morning comes. You know, you don't want to get out of bed. Why? Because it's comforting. You got your pillows, you got your comforters, and you got all that stuff in your bed. You had breakfast, that's even better, right? And breakfast in bed, oh my gosh. But he's telling here, Amos is telling them through this idiom, those who dwell on a bed up there in Samaria, that's what he's saying, in those beautiful homes, and he describes them as homes that are made out of ivory, no less. Now, just to give you an understanding of, of what this is, um, he's really talking about this, this false sense of security. Uh, those who dwell in, in, in Damascus there in a couch, that's a different point. But he's telling them that those who dwell on a bed up there in Samaria, those beautiful homes made out of ivory. We're going to learn a little bit more about that next time. But it really, he, he, he points out their mistake in trusting this alliance with Remember Syria, remember we talked about the background of, of, of Israel and Syria, and they thought, hey, you know what? Um, he's referring to Damascus, which is Syria. 90% of the population lives there in Damascus. He said it's a big mistake to, to trust in this alliance. So the circumstances of their lives are going to be radically changed because God isn't going to allow this alliance to continue, even though they had their own sense of security, even though they, they thought they could trust Syria to help them against Assyria, it didn't work out. As a matter of fact, it provoked Assyria. They said, oh, you're going to try to recruit somebody else? Well, we're going to come after you even more. <laughs> so it backfired. So their lives are radically radically changed. Now, to give you an idea, this, this houses of, of ivory statement here, um, we know that <coughs> Solomon had a, a, a throne of ivory. This is a house of ivory. <laughs> this is how rare this stuff was. This is how opulent these people were. They had a very, very strong sense of, of trust in what they had. So you look at what God will do, you learn why he brings his judgment, you learn how he will bring it to pass. But we also have to listen to what God says in verses 13 to 15. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, hear, hear ye. Hear ye, hear ye. That's basically what he's saying. And testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on that day I will punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel. He says here, 
that he will do what his righteous character demands. He is going to pass this judgment. He's not going to just allow it to go under the rug. He's saying basically, hey, listen up. Here's what's going to happen. Notice that phrase there, the Lord God, the God of hosts. That's used over 250 times. He will do what his righteous character demands. It's not dependent on you anymore. He's going to carry this out. You can count on it. The fact is that the Lord God, the God of love that we know, is, is a God of armies. <laughs> That's how he's described. He will bring his judgment. And in the case of Assyria, by the way, he did judge them with the angel of the Lord. Possibly the Messiah himself, some believe. But God used angels a lot to execute his plan and his purpose throughout Scripture. So he will do what his righteous character demands. Number two, he will destroy that which they worship. Look at what it says in verse 14. That on that day I will punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish, what's it say? The altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I thought it was interesting here that it, it used the word altars, plural. Plural. I mean, it was Jeroboam the first who, who had led Israel into idolatry, into immorality, by what did he do? He set up the golden calf at Bethel and at Dan. And here now you see this heresy that has grown, has led to more departures from the worship of the Lord, the God of hosts. And God will destroy that which they worship. <clears throat> and so by now they have many altars of pagan gods in pagan places to worship. It isn't just one anymore. That's what sin does. That's why, the, that's why as a church you have to be very careful. We have to be very careful that we guard against allowing sin, the Scripture says, into the camp, right? Because if you turn a blind eye to it, pretty soon, wow, there's more sin and more sin and more sin. And pretty soon, your church looks like the world. And everybody sits around and goes, wow, what happened? It starts one sin. That's why the Bible says in the New Testament, there's a such thing as church discipline. If we know that there's known sin going on, unrepentant sin. It says, go to that person and say, hey, you need to cut this out. As a member of the church, you shouldn't be doing this stuff. And if they listen to you, great. If they don't, what do you do? Matthew 18, you take somebody else with you and say, look, two of us are coming to you now. Maybe you do it a third time. They still don't do it. The Bible says, you know what? You tell the church. That's how serious this is. In other words, you get in front of the congregation on a Sunday morning and say, hey, you know what, Brother Bill is sleeping with the, 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 the neighbor's wife. I've gone to him. Ken and I have gone to him. We even went a third time to be gracious. He's unrepentant. And so we're telling you right now, Brother Bill, you need to go talk to him. You turn the church loose on him. If they don't listen to the church, the Bible says what? Treat him as an infidel. They're not part of you. They don't belong here. And literally, yes, it can get to that extent. To where someone tries to come to church and you have to say, no, you're not welcome here. I'm sorry. 
We pray that doesn't happen often. We pray that God is gracious with that process. And He's been very gracious with us as a church. So He will destroy what they worshipped. By the time of Amos, they had not just one altar. They had plural altars. And Jeroboam started this whole mess with idolatry, one altar. Then they began to be immoral in their practices. And then pretty soon they had temple prostitution going on. All kinds of stuff went on. But it started with one thing. And he's going to destroy all that. And then the third thing here, he will demolish all that they had depended on. Look at what it says in verse... 15, and this is where he talks about the houses of ivory. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. Do you think maybe they were a little wealthy? I mean, I wouldn't ask, but probably most of us don't own two houses. Some people do. There's nothing wrong with it, but I'm just saying most of us don't. Well, he says, you know what? It doesn't matter how many houses you have. I'm going to strike them. The winter house, the summer house. And then he says, the houses of ivory shall perish. And the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. As I said, Solomon had a throne of ivory. But here in Samaria, in their wealth and their opulence, they had, they had you know, just luxury, self-indulgence. They had houses made of ivory. And they were involved in all kinds of sensual and immoral practices. And they loved, quote, the good life with all of its prosperity. Well, God says, I will strike those houses. And it's, it's really interesting what Bible archaeologists say about verse 15. We all know that Amos indicates the wealth of Samaria, but what they say is that, wow, it's, it's a lot more than what we even think or give them credit for. They had just tons of wealth. But he says, I'm going to wipe out these houses of, of ivory. No more. I mean, even their religious leaders back in Amos' day preached the, me- the, the message that we call the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. It's still around. It's nothing new. It makes this passage rather contemporary, I think for our modern-day churches. And I find here there's, there's kind of a natural tendency of our hearts to want to go down that path. I'll just be honest, there isn't mine. The Bible says that they, they desire to be rich. Not that they are rich. Nothing wrong with having money and being wealthy. There's nothing wrong with that. But the Bible says that the danger comes when you desire riches. When you set your heart on becoming rich. It says that's when you will what? Fall into the temptation, the possible snare could throw you in many harmful lusts and desires. We're to flee that kind of lifestyle. This world is not our home. 
But here we look at Christianity today in our modern day in which we live, and we've got a lot of problems. People are focused on the wrong things. And there's a big, big difference between, you know, people say, well, we're only human. What do you expect? Well, there's a, there's a big difference between human tendency and the absolute proclamation of a health, wealth gospel. There's a big difference. Yeah, we all may be tempted to go down that path, but we know better. But there are actually people that promote that. That God blesses you if you're rich. It's ridiculous. Turn over, I'm just going to close with this, Second Peter. And we read this when we went through Jude. But it's, it's, it's just such a good way to close off this portion because Peter really speaks to really what the modern day church has become, unfortunately. Second uh, Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people. Remember, God speaks through his servants, what? The prophets. Well, these are false prophets. These are people that say they're speaking for God, but they're not. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, they'll get what's coming to them. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, verse 7, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, verse 8, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and he heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous, under punishment until the day of judgment. Verse 10, and especially those who indulge, look at what it says, in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. These are people within the church, beloved. 
They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Verse 17, these are waterless springs in mists in mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Verse 20, for if after they have escaped, the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Verse 21, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. See, with, with knowledge, with with God's revelation comes what? Responsibility. Verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog, the dog returns to its own vomit in the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. See, that will characterize, and that characterizes present tense, the, the preaching and the teaching that's going on in our day and will continue to continue in the end times. I think chapter 3 is a very, very uh, applicable chapter for us in the day in which we live. And we need to be on guard. We need to have our, our hearts and our minds focused on God and His Word more now than ever. That's our only hope, really. Father, we thank you for your word tonight, Lord. Lord, I know that those of us who are gathered here, you know our hearts. We can't fool you. And you know, Lord, how we always consider we're right. And Lord, we have a tendency to flavor things so that we might look good or at least not as bad as others. And we live in this world that puts pressure on us about prosperity, about wealth. And we look around us and just immorality has just run rampant. And this is all an abomination in your sight. We know that to be true. Compromises everywhere. And Lord, we pray that we won't blame the environment or the people outside of us, but we might look within our own hearts first. Because you said that which really troubles us, that which really defiles us, is not what others say. It's not what others do to us. It's that which comes out of our own heart. Lord, I cry out to you for help. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. That we might humble ourselves in the sight of God. And if we do that, we, you promise to lift us up 
Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your patience with us as your people. Lord, we thank you for the willingness to endure the mess that we've made of our lives many times. And Lord, we know that you will chasten us because you love us. Lord, help us to turn to you, confess it, forsake our sinful attitudes, our sinful actions. Lord, help us to know once again that joy and that peace, that we might know it personally and that we might become a blessing to everyone that we come across. The world around us here, especially in the Bay Area, needs needs you, Lord, desperately. And I pray that we would be the messenger, the one who brings the message of hope and forgiveness to a lost and dying world. Father, I pray you bless our conversation tonight, bless our fellowship, and bless the, the remainder of our week. Take us safely home. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen.